This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We'll open your Bible with me to the book of Matthew chapter 1, if you would. You know, there are certain occupational hazards associated with being a preacher or teacher of the Bible. One of those is the danger that someone will preach or teach your passage before you have the chance to do it. Uh, Since we tend to focus on certain parts of the Bible at Christmas, that danger can tend to increase this time of year. Uh, But this year I hatched a perfect plan. I knew I would be preaching once during the Christmas season, and so I decided I would preach from Matthew chapter 1, but not the, the blast part about the angel appearing to Joseph. I would preach from the genealogy part. After all, who's crazy enough to preach from a genealogy? I thought I was pretty clever. Well, God rebuked my pride uh, by having Brother Long bring a thoughtful and challenging lesson from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17 this morning. And uh, God has taught me my lesson on pride for the day. And if you didn't live stream the Adult Bible Fellowship Hour, I'd encourage you to go back and watch or listen uh, to that, that lesson. Um, I'll cover some of the same material that he did, um, but not in a way that's intended to improve on his delivery or correct anything he said. Um, the only reason I'm going to go over some of the same material is to help provide continuity to what we'll be considering this evening. You know, I do have to admit that each year, as I read the Christmas story in Matthew 1 and 2, And in Luke 1 and 2, I often skim over these verses. And sometimes I don't read them at all. But as I've read and spent time studying these verses this year, I've found that the material we'll consider tonight holds loads of lessons. In fact, uh, what I want to share tonight could easily be not just one message, but a whole series of messages. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 1 tonight and the surprising genealogy of Jesus. I think we can all agree that the genealogies of Scripture aren't, uh, don't necessarily make for thrilling reading. But, as, we're rem- as we were reminded this morning, digging a little deeper here yields some wonderful truths. Uh, there is a handout I mentioned this morning. If you go to the website, goodnewsbaptist.org slash sermons, uh, there is a handout. It looks like this. You can, you can download it or, uh, or see it, look at it on your phone. It's intended to... To help you, basically it just lists out the genealogy we're going to be looking at, but it gives you space and opportunity to make notes, um, write in some references, because I'm hoping that you'll leave here tonight uh, encouraged to study deeper, to look more closer into the, the lives of some of the people we'll consider tonight. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and then dig a little deeper to discover what makes the genealogy of Jesus so surprising. I was challenged by Brother Long to read this passage in Hebrew, or even in Greek, but I don't do dares, so I'm not going to take that challenge. Uh, But I am going to change the reading just a little bit by using, where applicable, not the names as we find them here in Matthew chapter 1, but the names as we find them in the Old Testament. And I want to do that, uh, hopefully to help you, as we read through this genealogy, to recognize some of these names and some of these individuals and give you a little bit of context uh, as we get ready to dive in. So please follow along with me 
as I read from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar, and Perez begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah, and Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat, begat Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Uzziah, and Uzziah begat Jotham, and Jotham begat Ahaz, and Ahaz begat Hezekiah, and Hezekiah begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Amon, and Amon begat Josiah. And Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begat Salathiel. And Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad. And Abiad begat Eliakim. And Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Sadok. And Sadok begat Achim. And Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eleazar. And Eleazar begat Matan. And Matan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Uh, that was quite a mouthful. But we just read through the generations all the way from Abraham in the book of Genesis to Jesus, who steps on the scene in Matthew chapter 1. It's a lot of people. It's a long time. It's a lot of history. And obviously we can't do justice to all of that tonight. We're going to take the 35,000 foot view this evening. We're going to move fast and we're going to fly high. Now let me ask you, without knowing the history, what would you expect of the lineage of Jesus? He's God in the flesh. He's the King of the Jews. He is the promised Messiah. And so you might expect that a list of his ancestors would be full of great successes, full of pure-blooded Jews, full of respected and well-known figures. Well, we'll quickly see whether that's the case. Tonight, I'd like to look at Jesus' genealogy in three parts, and we'll use the sections as they were outlined in Matthew 1.17. We'll consider the genealogy of Christ first from Abraham to David, then from David to the captivity in Babylon, and then from the captivity in Babylon to Christ. So let's take a look at the lineage of Christ from Abraham to David. And right off the bat, you think, Abraham, David? Those are some big names, uh, some respected people, the cream of the crop. But were they all respected? Were they all proud, full-blooded Jews? Well, not so much. In fact, I'd like to call this lot the outcasts outcasts? Well, we start with Abraham. Just picture it with me. Put yourself in Genesis 12. Hey, did you hear what cousin Abram is doing? Yeah, he's leaving Ur. He, he's just leaving. He said, God told him, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. Get this, he doesn't even know exactly where he's going. He's just leaving home. 
at becoming a nomad. He's going to live in a tent now. As Hebrews 11:8 puts it, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. He was a voluntary outcast from his own society. He left his home. He left his people and became a nomad. He took his family and started living in tents, not knowing whither he went. We could talk about Isaac, but for the sake of time, we'll move on to Jacob. Was Jacob an outcast? Well, he had to run away from home in Genesis 27 to avoid being murdered by his brother Esau. Kind of an outcast. How about Judah? Well, it's kind of embarrassing that he and Tamar are even mentioned here. Uh, Genesis 38 tells us that she was his daughter-in-law, and he almost had her killed when he found out that she was expecting outside the bonds of marriage. Only they found out that he, Judah, her father-in-law, was the father of the twins she was expecting. He had thought she was a harlot. Not exactly family-friendly material. We don't get much information in Scripture on the next several guys. Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, and Salmon. But as we get to Salmon, things get interesting again. Because do you remember who Salmon's wife was? We met her in Joshua chapter 2. Her name was Rahab. Known to us in Scripture as Rahab the harlot. When it came to being a respected member of Jewish society, she didn't have much going for her. She was a harlot, and she was a Canaanite from Jericho. I can just imagine the sideways glances that Salmon got when he announced their betrothal. Honestly, I can hardly imagine someone being much more of an outcast in the proud society of ancient Israel than a woman from Jericho who had made a living that way. But there she is. Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz. He also married an outcast, a Moabitess named Ruth. Boaz, well-to-do landowner in Bethlehem, married Ruth, a widowed woman from Moab. To get an idea of how big a deal that was, the relative who was the rightful kinsman, redeemer, who by Jewish law should have married Ruth to carry on the line of her late husband, cho chose to suffer public shame before the rulers of the people, rather than marry Ruth. Boaz and Ruth had a son named Obed, who had a son named Jesse, who had a son named David. Now you might say, David, there's no way you could say that David was an outcast. Really? Well, let me remind you what happened in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel, the patriarchal prophet of Israel visits Jesse and his family to anoint the next king, the king who will succeed Saul to the throne of Israel. And Jesse lines up all of his sons, except one. He doesn't even bother calling David in from the field. David is, if you'll pardon the expression, the runt of the litter. Just, just look at how his oldest brother Eliab treats him in 1 Samuel 17. Remember, David 
he, he comes to the army. His father sends him to the army with a gift for his brothers. And David comes and he starts questioning them about Goliath. You know, what's going on? Who is this guy? What's he doing here? And uh, you remember what Eliab told him? He basically told him, run back home and babysit the sheep. You're just a little boy who wants to see some battle. David was overlooked and spurned by his own family. Oh, and do you remember how, before David took the throne, how he was hunted like a wild animal by King Saul? So a bunch of outcasts. Abraham, Jacob, Judah, Rahab, Ruth, David. Outcasts. And yet here they are in the genealogy of Christ. The fact is they may have been rejected and overlooked by society for being different, for being sinful, for being women, for being foreigners, for being young. But God said, I'll take him and I'll take him and her and him. I've got something special in mind for them. They might be outcasts, but they're going to be a part of the genealogy of Christ. Well, that's the first 14 generations, from Abraham to David. And as we enter the next 14 generations, from David to the captivity, you might think, now things are going to get good. Now we're starting into the royal line of David, the kings. These are going to be some upstanding characters, some real success stories, some real people to respect and honor. Well, not so much. In fact, I would call this next group the failures. See, right off the bat, we run into trouble. You've got David, and after him, you've got Solomon. Two great kings, right? But who was Solomon's mom? Bathsheba. That's not exactly a name that calls up warm memories of David's glorious and righteous reign. Was David the ideal, exemplary king that we thought he was going to be? No. 2 Samuel 11 tells the whole sordid story of David and Bathsheba, and we come to the end shocked to find that David is a deceptive adulterer and murderer. And his family ends up falling apart too. To be honest, it doesn't seem without good reason. David was kind of a horrible dad. David did get a f some things right, but in a lot of ways, he was kind of a failure. How about Solomon? Was he a failure? Well, not when it came to dispensing wisdom, or amassing wealth, or building a magnificent temple. But do you remember what second, or 1 Kings 11 tells us about him? He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. 1 Kings 11 specifically mentions four different pagan deities, and these weren't just garden-variety gods. One of them was Moloch. Worshipping Moloch involved sacrificing children. Solomon was a moral failure. And it just keeps going. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, threw away the kingdom in 1 Kings... Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the chapter here. 
Um, but he forsook good counsel and listened to his buddies instead. And he threw away most of the kingdom. That's when the kingdom split into the northern uh, kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. With Rehoboam's son, Abiah, or Abijah, it's enough to read what 1 Kings 15 tells us. And he walked in all the sins of his father. Abiah's son, Asa, had a good start. But 2 Chronicles 16 tells the story of how he turned from trusting God for help and victory to trusting his own resources. There in 2 Chronicles 16, he gives away the gold and silver from the temple to try to buy the allegiance of the Syrians to help him resist attack. A prophet comes to Asa to rebuke him for his lack of faith. And what does Asa do? He throws the prophet in jail. How about Asa's, uh, the, the next guy in line here, Jehoshaphat? We could dig in with each of these, and I'd encourage you to. Go back and read their stories. Um, they're loaded with lessons for us. Uh, but King Jehoshaphat, he teamed up with the wicked king Ahab, probably the most wicked Hebrew king we, we meet in Scripture, and Jehoshaphat buddies up with him. Jehoshaphat's son Joram he married Ahab's daughter and was about the kind of king you'd expect based on that fact. Oh, how about Uzziah? Well, he was a good king for a while. But 2 Chronicles 26 tells us, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. See, priests were the only ones who were supposed to offer incense in the temple. Uzziah decided he thought that was a dumb rule. And so being the great, powerful king who he was, he just walked right into the temple to offer incense himself. Well, God struck him with leprosy, and Uzziah spent the last years of his life separated from everyone, unclean, because of his foolish pride. Jotham was actually a pretty good king. He didn't take all the pagan worship away from the land, uh, but he did pretty well for the 16 years that he reigned. But his son Ahaz, not so much. Ahaz embraced pagan idolatry, and 2 Kings 16 tells us that Ahaz sacrificed his own son to one of the pagan gods. He took the altar, later on he took the altar in the temple that had built, been built specifically to God's specifications, and he moved it to another part of the temple so that he could build a new altar that was based off of a pagan altar that he'd seen while he was visiting Syria. That's Ahaz. Hezekiah. Now there's a good king. He really was. But he wasn't without his failings. In 2 Kings 20, he makes the foolish choice of showing off all of his riches and all the splendor and glory of the temple to a group of people from Babylon that are visiting. Uh, the only reason he did it was just his pride to show off all that he had, all that the nation had. And the prophet Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and tells him that as a result of that pride, all of those treasures are going to be carried into Babylon in the days of his descendants. And Hezekiah basically just manages to say, well, at least it won't happen while I'm alive. 
So even a king like Hezekiah certainly had his failings. Hezekiah's son Manasseh was a terrible king. Reading 2 Kings 21 makes us realize that pretty much he undid all the good that his father had done for the nation. And though the Bible doesn't go into detail about how, it tells us that he shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. I don't know what what the circumstances were, if it's talking about potentially this pagan worship, uh, human sacrifices. uh, I don't know. But that's the kind of king that Manasseh was. Now, I don't want to overlook the wonderful fact that he did turn to God at the end. 2 Chronicles 33 tells us that he repented and he turned to the Lord even after all that. His son Amon followed him to the throne and reigned for only two years. But 2 Kings 21 tells us he did evil, he worshipped idols, and he forsook God. Amon's son Josiah. Now he was an amazing king. 2 Kings 22 and 23 tells the thrilling story of how during Josiah's reign, they rediscovered God's law. The book of the law And the whole nation was transformed as Josiah and the people returned to God wholeheartedly. Josiah purged the land of idolatry and sin. And you could argue that there was a nationwide revival during his reign. And there seems to be real hope for God's people. Maybe they're turning a corner. Maybe after all these horrible kings, things are going to head in the right direction. But even Josiah showed his foolishness. By going to war with the king of Egypt for no discernible reason, he dies in battle and ends up being the last real king to speak of that the nation of Judah had. So this whole line of kings, from David to Josiah, and we enter into it expecting so much, and yet they're all failures. A few here and there were actually good kings. But even the good kings, we look at the things they did in their lives and say, it's hard for us to even look at them as role models with the foolishness that went on. The sin, the pride. When it comes down to it, these were a bunch of sinners. Not exactly an exemplary royal line. But stop for a minute. Because aren't you glad That when David sinned with Bathsheba, God didn't say, you're out. I'll pick another royal line. Aren't you glad that he didn't throw out Asa or Uzziah or Hezekiah or Josiah because they were foolish and proud and sinful? Aren't you glad that he didn't even remove Ahaz or Manasseh even though they were awful kings? Why not? Well, sin does not stop the plan of God. God knows that we are a bunch of failures and he uses us anyway. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying, well, just sin away because God can use you anyway. No, just look at the consequences these men faced for their sin. Uh, Look at the consequences that the nation had as they marched off into captivity in Babylon. 
what I am trying to say is, don't fall for the foolish lie that our human sins and failings somehow derail the work of God. Or that once you've messed up, God puts you on a shelf and you're never going to be used again. You messed up. It's over for you. God will find a new servant. I am grateful that that's not how God works. I am grateful that God uses outcasts and failures. These guys were all failures, but God still said, you get to be in the royal line of David, the lineage of the Messiah, the lineage of my son. God uses outcasts and failures. How about the last 14 generations? Surely things are going to get brighter, right? As we go from the captivity to Christ. Well, not necessarily. I'd like us to consider this last section as the obscure. These last ones we'll look at are honestly a bunch of nobodies. What do we know about Jeconiah? Well, he was also known as Jehoiachin. He reigned for, get this, three months. In 2 Kings 24, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged Jerusalem, and he took Jeconiah and his family as prisoners, along with all the gold and silver from the temple, like God had told Hezekiah was going to happen. And just like that, the monarchy is over, and soon the whole nation would be in captivity in Babylon. After Jeconiah, we don't really know anything about Salathiel. These are obscure people, remember. Uh, Zerubbabel, we do see a good bit of him in the books of Ezra, Haggai, and Zechariah, where we learn that he and Joshua the high priest led the first group that returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Uh, He served as the governor of Judah as the temple was rebuilt, and he helped set the stage for Nehemiah uh, to return with another group and rebuild the city walls. But Zerubbabel was kind of a nobody too. He's the guy that Zechariah reminded in Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And seeing what we do of Zerubbabel, I don't think that God was giving him that message because Zerubbabel was proud. I think God was giving him that message because Zerubbabel was afraid there's no way this is going to work. There's no way I can lead these people. Zerubbabel was a small, obscure guy, and he knew it. Later on in that same chapter, he is encouraged not to despise the day of small things. He was just an obscure governor. And after him, things get really obscure. We enter 400 years of biblical silence. So we know nothing about Abiad, or Eliakim, or Azor, or Sadok, or Achim, or Eliad, or Eliezer, or Matan, or Jacob. These are a bunch of faceless names, obscure characters who've been lost to history. Finally, we get to Joseph. We know Joseph. And who was he? He was a carpenter, a common workman, betrothed to a common girl named Mary. 
And, and he's not a well-to-do workman. We find that he's all but destitute. He and Mary, when they travel to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 2, are too poor to afford the customary offering of a lamb. As we are told in Leviticus chapter 12, when they dedicate Mary's little baby son, they have to settle for the needy, ba- the needy person's substitute, which was a pair of pigeons. Joseph and Mary were poor. They were obscure. They were nobodies. They weren't on anybody's radar. Except that's not quite true. God chose them. This obscure man and this obscure woman from Nazareth. An angel brought the happy news that God had chosen Mary to carry Jesus, the Savior, Christ the Lord. That's the genealogy of Christ. You might say, that was kind of a downer. That was kind of discouraging. We just considered a multitude of generations of human weakness and failure. We've seen a startling array of outcasts, failures, and obscure people. Yet they make up the lineage of the most important figure in all history, Jesus Christ. The fact is, his genealogy is a snapshot of human history. Bringing out the rejection, the failure, and the sin that mark every generation. So what do we learn from all of these decidedly human humans? Well, we learn that human limitations and human weakness do not hinder the work of God. God can and will use anyone. You know, it's interesting because looking at this genealogy, it's almost like God said, what would be the most surprising type of person for me to put in the lineage of Christ? How about a harlot? How about a Gentile, a Moabitess? How about an adulterer? How about a poor carpenter? You know what? I'll put them all in there. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. And every generation fails. And every generation screams out, we need a savior. And every generation brings his birth a little closer. And every generation fits into God's perfect plan and Christmas comes right on schedule. You know, I was thinking about this today. Uh, This side of Jesus' genealogy was a real mess. What about the other side? This is his human lineage. And we didn't even, if you go to Luke, you can take it all the way back to Adam. We just went back to Abraham. But... This is his human lineage. But the divine side of Jesus' lineage is really simple. Jesus, the Son of God. And it reminds me, from our perspective, things are often complicated 
They're messed up. They're tangled. There's no discernible purpose, no discernible direction. But to an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God, all of it is startlingly simple. So, Jesus had a surprising genealogy. Full of outcasts, full of failures, full of nobodies, obscure people. So what do we learn from that? What, what, how can we be challenged from that? I want to give you two challenges tonight. First of all, thank God. Thank God that he uses the outcasts, the failures, and the obscure. Aren't you grateful that God doesn't just use the well-known, the respected, and the successful? Just read your Bible. So many times it's like God picked the person who was the exact wrong guy for the job, and yet he put them in there and, and made something of them. He's not limited by all those things that, that we think about. I've got to be gifted in this certain way. I've got to be known among people for me to have any kind of influence. I've got to have a personality that it's just natural for me to be a certain way. God's not limited by any of that. God doesn't need you to be the perfect mold for the job. God can use anyone. And I'm also grateful that as we look at the world around us, we might be discouraged by those who seem to have influence, by those who seem to have power, by those who seem to be directing the direction the world is going. We might be discouraged by that, to say, well, if the wrong person's in power, if the wrong person has influence, if the wrong kind of people are who the young people are looking up to these days, what are we going to do? Isn't it amazing that God even used the people who never acknowledged him? They went their whole lives, some of these people. Some of those kings, they went their whole lives rejecting God, saying, I don't care. I'm grateful for the stories of those who turned to him, who repented. Guys like Manasseh, who said, I've been wrong this whole time. And God broke his heart and he repented. I'm grateful for that story. But I'm also grateful that God made it clear that he even took the lives of the wicked, unrepentant, and he made something of them too. Again, this isn't an excuse to say, well, God is in control, so it doesn't really matter how I act. It doesn't matter what kind of decisions I make. It doesn't matter what kind of influence I try to exert. God will do what he's going to do anyway. That's not the lesson for us. But the lesson is don't despair. God isn't stopped just because the wrong person is exerting influence, just because the wrong person is in power, just because the wrong person got a spot on TV. That doesn't stop God. It doesn't even slow him down. God's plan keeps moving forward. So thank God that he uses the outcasts, the failures, and the obscure. And secondly running the danger of sounding like a sappy self-help book, don't give up on yourself. Now, I don't say that because 
there's something inside you. There's something special about you, and you just have to reach in. You have the power inside to make something of your life. No, 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 no. The fact is you don't. There's nothing special about you. There's nothing about you that makes you able to accomplish anything, except one thing. We're all really good at sinning. But God can make something of you. And there are hundreds, thousands maybe, of Christians who've given up on ever being used by God again. They've left it up to other people. Other people who are, you know, I'm I'm an outcast, but there are other people who are in the in crowd. God will use them. I've sinned too much. I've failed too much. God can use the people who have cleaner lives, who haven't messed up as much, who don't have as much baggage as I do. Or nobody knows who I am. God can use the people who have other people's ears, who have more influence than I do. Remember, God delights to use the outcasts, the failures, and the obscure. We need to come to God and turn ourselves over to him. But if we do, God is not limited. None of that stops him. You know, I'm grateful, because as you look at Mary and Joseph, again, they were obscure. They, they didn't start out with lots of influence. Um, we've been reminded that Mary was realized that all generations would call her blessed. But that's not because she was already well-known and she had lots of people that were listening to her and looking up to her. These were obscure people. They didn't have influence. They didn't have power. They didn't have anything to wield. And yet when God said, Mary, I want to use you, and Joseph, I want you to continue with Mary. I want you to go ahead and marry her because I want to use you in this plan too. There's no hint of you know, let me, let me think about this for a while. Let me consider all the implications. Let me decide whether this is worth it for me. They were ready to surrender. They were also ready because they were already trying to live God's way. They were already trying to follow the law. Joseph was, remember, a just man. He cared about what God had to say. He cared about following God. That was the heart they had, so they were ready. God can use anybody, but that's what he's looking for. People with hearts like that. To say, I'm not necessarily gifted for this. I'm not necessarily ready for this. It might not necessarily make sense to me that you want to use me, but I'm ready. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. So remember, don't give up. It'd probably be better to say, don't give up on God. Don't give up on God making something of your life. Don't sit back and say, you know, I, I've, I've had my go, I've had my run. I'm, I'm too old now. I've sinned too much now. I've messed up too many relationships. Whatever it might be. I'll just kind of sit and coast for the rest of my life, and I'll let the other people serve God. God delights to use people that get overlooked. 
by the world, who are cast aside by the world, who are seen as nothing. I love how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. He says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Thank God for the surprising genealogy of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, you are such a great God. We're reminded of that in a hundred ways at Christmas time. Thank you for this lesson. That you are such a great God that you incorporate sinful, weak, failing people into your plan. Thank you that you're not limited by the things that we often limit ourselves with or consider to be uh, the weaknesses. I think of Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that many other people could have said, I have this problem. I can't serve God. Unless it goes away, I'm never going to be able to do anything for the Lord. And yet you used that. You chose to use that weakness and that pain, and that suffering. And Paul was just exactly who you wanted to use. Not because of his strength, not because of his giftedness, but because he was weak. I thank you for the lives of those we've looked at tonight. And honestly, this can be kind of discouraging to go through them and see all the sin. Some of these stories just disgust us. The things these people did with their lives, we, we can't imagine. And yet there they are, the genealogy of Christ. Father, help us to be like Mary and Joseph, to be ready to surrender to whatever your plan is for us. But Father, help us not to be so foolish as to place constraints on what you can do through us. Encourage us with this lesson this Christmas, we ask. You know those who need to be encouraged tonight, who've given up, who've let discouragement start to call their shots in their lives, who've decided that their days of being used by you are over, or perhaps haven't begun yet, or perhaps will never happen. Lord, get a hold of their hearts tonight, I pray. Help them surrender to you, and would you use them for your glory, by your power, as you did in the lives of this collection of outcasts, failures, and obscure that we've looked at tonight. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for your power and for your grace. Pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 
888-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.